um, back to our topic here, women of and in the church. So for the last quite some time now, uh, with many interludes in between where I've not been here, uh, we've talked about these three key words, submission, shamefacedness, and silence. Wrapping it up last week with our understanding of the nature of the women being silent in the church, not speaking of them, not being able to uh, contribute, but rather uh, when we talk about authoritative questioning or authoritative uh, contribution, that idea um, uh, of, of suffering not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man. And so in First Corinthians, in, in First Timothy 2, it's quite clear that that's the context, that uh, a woman is silent in the church and does not usurp authority over the man or to teach in that, in that uh, vein. But then in 1 Corinthians 14, that's the one that is a little less clear, unless you keep it in context. And if you keep it in context, if you read the context, everything that comes before it, then it's quite clear that we're speaking of the idea of speaking in tongues, the idea uh, um, uh, of standing and having that authoritative contribution in the body in that way. So, um, we have talked about those three now, and, nope, I wanted to go the other direction. Uh, now we are saying, okay, well then what is the woman's role that we see in the scriptures as it relates to the assembly? So we're going to begin with the, the clarity of the scriptures in First Timothy chapter 2. Uh, this is in that passage. Uh, verse 11, let the, women learn, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. There's the contrast that tells us exactly what we're talking about there. Silence does not mean she can't speak. It does not mean that she cannot uh, uh, um, contribute in a, in a way that is in line with submission. We'll talk about that as we get to First Corinthians, back to 1 Corinthians 11 in our application here. But it does mean um, that she cannot exercise that place of authority in the church. And we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more as we get into the service aspect of the church. And we'll, we'll get into a little controversy, um, which, you know, you know, I never get into anything controversial, but we'll, we'll, we'll try, try our hand at it this evening. Um, and then the reasoning. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. And so we have this statement here appealing to the fact that Adam was, uh, was, was formed first, and then Eve... And in that, we find this reality that man is intended to be the head of the family unit. He's intended to be the head of uh, society. He is intended to be the, he is designed to be a leader in society. Now, of course, as we say, and, and we, we emphasize, biblically speaking, this does not place women in any sort of an inferior light as it relates to the image of God and man, as it relates to natural human dignity, or as it relates to even capability. Women are not made inferior. Women are made different. And there's a big difference between inferiority and difference, right? Difference is just different. Women have a different role. It is not an inferior role. As a matter of fact, if we look at the vast majority of Christian theology and the Christian church drawn from the Bible, women have a essential and in, in that sense superior role in that they are the life givers, they are the ones who carry life. They are the ones who bear life. And so they have had in the Christian church an elevated role and a rightfully elevated role in history. This is why when we see the, the society that came out of the Reformation, that was also the time where women were elevated in society, where the, the, the uh, 
principles of chivalry became most applicable. Why? Well, because it was drawing out of the Bible principles as it related to the nature of man's purpose and woman's purpose. And man recognized through the study of the Word of God that woman's purpose is an elevated purpose, is an exalted purpose. And man honors that in the way he treats her, cares for her, protects her. Men go to war and die for their women and children. Men work their entire lives for their women and children, right? That's the purpose. That's the point. We invest everything that is our life in the ability for women to bear the next generation and to raise that next generation. And that is a reflection of the kind of exaltation that women have biblically and ought to have in society. So this is not a a statement of superiority and inferiority in any way, shape, or form. This is a statement of difference. And in the nature of, of, of God's delegated purposes, man has been delegated the role of leader, protector, provider. And by the way, men, that means you have extra accountability you being in that role of leader, protector, and provider does not give you the right or, the, or, or, or the, uh, the, um, a free pass at responsibility, loyalty, care, service. It actually places a deeper, a heavier burden on your shoulders because you are the one that's going to stand before God and answer for that. You are the one that's going to stand before God and uh, and. and Face him for how you handled the delegated responsibilities that he gives you. And yes, with delegated responsibility, oftentimes uh, comes privilege. That when you are the leader in your home, when you are the leader in society, it comes with certain privileges in the home and in society. But it also comes with grave, heightened responsibilities and accountabilities. And you can't have one without the other and still be right with God. Okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm not just going to okay and, and go past that. Questions, concerns, thoughts on, on that basic de- those basic design principles? Okay, so now let's get to the verse. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now, there are a, a tremendous number of different interpretations of this verse. And the reason why is because um, modern sensibilities don't like this verse. And since modern sensibilities don't like this verse, they've kind of gone out of their way, the church has, to change what this verse seems to mean. And let me show you what I mean by that. So, um, I give you here the Greek versions of this verse in both the Textus Receptus, which is what our King James is translated out of, as well as the West Cotton Hort. Uh, this is the 1881 with Nestle Lalande variants. is a, a variation of the critical Greek text that has been um, modified 30 times since it came out. Uh, they're on the 30th, I believe the 30th uh, edition of it. So notice here um, um, that this word shall be saved. Future passive indicative, third person singular. And it's the same in both, notice the the forms of the word, 
Yeah, it does, uh, this one doesn't have the accent because it's not accented. One of the, the most interesting things um, uh, is that most people, when they teach Greek, most colleges, Bible colleges included, don't care about the accents. But the accents are actually quite important. There are certain words where you need to know where the accents are put on the syllable in order to actually understand what the parsing of the word is supposed to be. Um, so I was thankful I went to an institution that taught me that the accents are important and taught me where they ought to go. Um, but you won't see that in most modern, modern Greek texts because they tell everyone the accents don't matter. Um, but you, but I, I tend to preserve it in the Textus Receptus. So um, this is the same word, yet you can't see the accent on the West Cotton Hort, but it is the same word, future passive indicative. Uh, but uh, in childbearing or through childbearing, depending on how we, we, we um, um, would translate the, the preposition there, she shall be saved. And this is a future passive indicative third person singular. Um, if they, aorist active subjunctive third person plural, same word, if they... Continue. Now, what I'm emphasizing here is this. Third person singular. A single person shall be saved, right? A singular person. She shall be saved if they, plural, continue in faith and love and holiness with sobriety. So notice the change there from third person singular to third person plural, and notice that that change happens both in the Textus Receptus and in the Greek critical text. Now, if we go to, can I zoom in on this? Oh, do I zoom in? I do. Good. We go to various translations of this. King James, notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. New King James, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control. New Living Translation, but women, women, is that singular or plural? Plural. Will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue. So, and whenever you see one of these little marks there, that means they probably have a footnote saying this should actually be singular, right? So notice they changed it to women in order to make women agree with the, the in order to make the, 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 the number of the um, um, pronoun, well, in this case, not a pronoun, the noun, but in order to make the noun agree with the pronoun in number. Uh, new, new international version, but women, and they put the footnote right there saying in the Greek, it's actually woman or she, um, but women, plural, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with sobriety. Uh, English standard, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue. So the ESV gets it right. Um, but notice there that the New Living Translation and the NIV. Now, when I, when, normally if I see something like this happen, I say, oh, okay. The Greek text is different, right? They're translating out of their own Greek text. I expect it to be different. But in this case, they don't even follow their own Greek text because they don't like the implications of she and they being in the text. And we'll talk about why, why that might be in a little bit. 
Continuing in our translations here, I think. No, no, I only give you those. Let's see, I'll just scroll down then. Um, New American Standard, uh, 2020, women. New American Standard, 95, women. Notice at least it's in italics there so that they're telling you that's not in the original text. Um, I don't even know what LSB is. New, uh, New English Translation, she, that one gets it right. But notice this. She will be delivered through childbearing if she continues. Not they, she Yet woman, that's correct there, will be saved through childbearing if she continues. Revised Standard. Revised Standard was the very first translation that came out of the critical Greek text. The one in 1881. They changed they to she. So what we call this is bad translations. What we call this is interposing your interpretation onto the text rather than telling the, Amer- the, the church what the text actually says. This is interpretation, not translation. American Standard Version. She shall be saved if they. Good. Uh, Young's Literal. She shall be saved if they. Darby, she shall be saved if they. Webster's, she will be saved if they. And then I don't even know what HNV is. Um, So we have, and that one's got it right, whatever HNV is. Um, So this is one of the reasons when we talk about the text issue, when we talk about translations, yeah, our, our big focus is the Greek text. But then when we talk about translations and we say not all translations are made equal and we think through it, it's one thing to have a a translator say, you know, we've got this text and we think that this text is a better text and we're going to translate from it and then they translate. It's another thing when they're not even faithful to their own text as a means by which to impose their interpretive gloss. Now, whether or not their interpretive gloss is right or wrong, it's not appropriate for them to change it like that. Tell us what the text says. It's fine if you want to put a footnote that says this means this. And, and maybe, maybe their translation is right. Maybe it ought to... Maybe the, the they there is speaking of she... But that's not what the text says. So, that's where you can see the controversy. Now, let me ask you this. Um, why, what are some ways, and, and I've, I've talked about this verse a lot, so you all know what I think on it. What, what are some ways through these verses that we might, not, not just the King James, but what are some ways that, that the King James or these other versions are attempting us, are attempting to, to get us to understand or interpret? It's, let me try to frame words in an English sentence with like proper grammar and whatnot. Um, how are these translations, what are the various interpretations that these translations could lead us to? There we go. 
And any, any of the ones from, from what we see here? Sam. Good. And that's, that's been my, my consistent interpretation that she, because we have a she contrasted with a they, the she here, of course, would be the woman that we've been talking about for several verses, and the they makes most sense to me that that would be her children because we're talking about childbearing. Okay, let's, uh, let's run down the list a little bit then. And the, the, there is a they here, and the they does not have a direct antecedent as a pronoun. So um, there are some other ideas about what the they may be. Um, so look at what the New Living Translation says, or, or the NIV. The NIV. Let's do the NIV because it, it was, it was the... the, the Translation of the 80s and 90s, right? But women, so they change it from she to women, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love. Now, what is this attempting to say? What, what is their interpretive gloss there for which they changed the first um, pronoun, she, to the noun women? Right. So now the NIV is saying that women will be saved if the women themselves continue in faith, love, holiness with propriety. Now, what is the difference between those two? Why, why, why is the NIV version of this so much more palatable, though very completely wrongly translated, why is it so much more pal- palatable to the American female reader? Okay, yeah, you're, it doesn't matter how your kids turn out for you to be fine and dandy. Was there another hand? What else? How about women that don't have kids? The Bible just excluded all of them from the church, right? And that's offensive, see? And we can't have that. And so we're going to change it to not offend. Um, There was one more variation here, um, I think. Yeah, the the New English translation. Uh, She shall be saved through her childbearing. No, 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 here we are. She will be delivered through childbearing if she continues. So we know what that one's doing. That one's doing the same thing, only it's changing the the, the plural to singular in the second half rather than changing the singular to plural in the first half. But it's doing the same thing, right? It's placing the woman's destiny in her own hands. It's giving her self-agency to the extent that, 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 that it's only about her own attitude and disposition before the Lord that will place her into a position of um, whatever it means that she'll be saved in the church. And we've already, of course, talked about the word saved. Right, So we know, we talked about that in our last series, so we know that we're not dealing with, this is not being born again, right? As a matter of fact, we talked about this very verse uh, when we were in that series. So this is the controversy. Um, Is there anybody that has another idea of who the they could be other than the woman's children 
because it is a, a somewhat ambiguous pronoun there. If we go back to the, the King James translation, we'll, we'll stick to what we have our, our faith in. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue. Who is there? Is there anyone that has another idea about who the they could be? Elaborate. So, say there's a hard pregnancy and the mother goes to give birth and dies. So, we're talk- so, so the saved here would be actually saved from, from death or. Tr- oh, okay. So, we'd be, we'd be looking at a very literal, a very physical. physical deliverance idea um, that the woman won't die in childbearing if the couple is right with God. Would be. I'm not saying I believe that. I'm saying it's you could extract that. Sure, sure. Now, has anyone ever heard that? Do do you know of anyone that that holds that? And just what I pulled out of when I was going through options in my life. Okay, but you don't know anyone that that preaches it. You guys do. Okay. Sure, sure. It's an interesting. I, I, I had never, never considered it, but it makes sense. Like, if it weren't in the context of a contrast with men teaching and women not teaching, if it weren't for the context, the actual idea there is valid. That they would be very much a dangling pronoun. We wouldn't have any antecedent to connect it to um, uh, in the context. But an interesting, um, an interesting interpretive gloss there, which in and of itself, if you take it just in and of itself, actually not a not a holy not not, not at all a a, a, a it's, it's, it's a possible yeah, it's a possible interpretation um, I, would, I would agree that I disagree with it um, on numerous levels um, that would harken back to kind of the, the same debate that happens in Job, where Job is su- suffering and all of his friends say, you're suffering because God hates you, because you must be doing something wrong. Uh, and the whole point of that entire book of Job is that's not how it works, right? That people don't suffer just because they're, ro- because they're out of step with God. Job was the most in step with God of anyone on the earth, and yet he was suffering, right? So um, uh, I, would, I would doctrinally greatly disagree, but it is a... A valid potential interpretation. Good. Any other? Does, does anyone have any others? Yes. So she shall be saved if the whole family continues in 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 faith, uh, charity, and and I think that that um, that's very very close to what we what we actually what I what I would say is the the primary interpretation, other than the fact that it doesn't hinge on. Her and her husband as much as on the children there, but uh, good, good. Any others that you can think of the other other antecedents to the to the they pronoun or other meanings to the whole to the whole verse? Because the idea of her being saved is also somewhat ambiguous, right? Because we've seen how many different ways the word saved can be used: physical salvation, um, uh, spiritual deliverance, emotional deliverance, justification. Um, Forgiveness, all of those things fall into the realm of that, that, that word. I 
shall be saved from having no role or significance in the church that her primary ministry is childbearing. And, and that's what we would believe, that she is say, that, that the question is, okay, if the woman can't teach and usurp authority over man, then what, what is her role in the church? What is her, the, the ecclesiastical contribution to the church that she has? And... Now, um, dia is primarily through. So she shall be saved through child, childbearing. So the act of childbearing is the means of her salvation is kind of how, how that would be most naturally. Now, the thing with, with prepositions in the Greek is that they oftentimes carry several different glosses. So while I would generally, anytime I see dia, what immediately comes to my mind is through. It's actually glossed in many, many different ways, depending on the word that it's put with. So um, we've talked before about the, 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 the different cases, the nominative case, uh, the accusative case, the genitive case, the dative case. We've talked about that. I think the last time we talked about it was a year ago when you all asked me specifically about that Christmas passage, um, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And we talked about how it switches from, a, I think, the dative case to the genitive case, and that makes all the difference in how Bibles translate it, right? Um, because of the way the Greek texts switch the word. Um, but we have those four cases, and a lot of times a preposition will actually take a different gloss depending on the, prep, or the, the case of the word that it's, it's paired with as well. So there's, there's a lot to it. Again, one of those reasons why no matter how much Greek I teach you, you don't know Greek. Um, but at the same time, and this is why when anyone comes to you and says, I, I, my heresy is correct because I did a study in the Greek, they don't know Greek. They don't know Greek because they opened a Strong's does not mean they know Greek. Because they read a book does not mean they know Greek. Language is complicated. If you've ever tried to learn another language, and it's one thing to learn the words, and even to put those words together, but when you actually seek to communicate all the nuance of language, right? So cracking open a Strong's and tracing a word does not make you know Greek, right? Um, but yeah, uh, through would be the natural idea here. Um, the idea of, um, we, we would call it um, in a, a um, well, what is it? Where are we with here? We're with a genitive, um, which would be source. So this would be the idea of, um, uh, um, it wouldn't be a date, it wouldn't be means because that would be more of a dative idea. So it'd be more like a source, that the source of her salvation is in childbearing, would be, would be the, kind of the essence of it here. Um, so, we, we, we do see this idea as with the salvation, and the question is, what does that salvation mean? And, and your Bible, I think, I think it's a, it's a good, it's a good um, way to describe it, that this is the redemption of her functional role her primary functional role in the church. Now, that being said, the only functional role of the man in the church is not to teach, right? There's many others. However, when we talk about what it is that we're here to do, when we think in Ephesians, the Bible says that God gave the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers 
for the perfection of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the church of God, we recognize that a, a primary, maybe even we might say the primary functional purpose of the church is to edify the believers. And that is through the teaching ministry. However, there are so many other things that happen in the church based upon other men's gifts, right? Now, the same is with women. And that's what we're going to see as we continue. So what we don't want to do is shy away from what, what, what Paul is saying here, but we also don't want to, nor can we say, as we continue our study, that if women don't have children or if their children do not continue in faith and hope, uh, or faith, charity, and holiness with sobriety, that that means that they're no good to the church, that they're just outcasts or refuse of the church. It doesn't work that way either. But this is the clearest statement of contrast between the man's role as pastor-teacher, and if I may say it this way, in the same way that that role of teacher is elevated in the church as the primary functioning role of the, the church and, and the man in that position, the Bible says that elders that, that rule well are worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in word and in doctrine. Why are they... Why are the ones that labor in word and in doctrine worthy of the double honor? Because they're, they are doing the primary function of the church, the primary function of the man that leads the church. In the same way, the primary function of the woman in the church, primary function, not the only, but the primary, is to bear and raise the next generation of the church. Because the church dies without our women. We're seeing... Our, our young people leave the church in droves today, and thus churches are dying. Um, you go to, into a lot of churches, they're all old people. They're dying. There's no one replacing them. And that's, of course, not because women aren't having kids, although that is happening in our society now. Um, the, the number of women without children in our society is skyrocketing. But it's that we're losing the kids. But it's the same principle, is it not? That in order for the church to, go, to, to continue from generation to generation, the church must be renewed. We must have another generation if we're going to carry the church into that generation. And that is... The primary, if you will, functional redemption of the woman in her, if we may put it this way, usefulness to serve the church. So that any of, of the women that we have here, and I've, I've had it asked before, Pastor, I, I feel as though I'm not able to do a lot for the Lord right now. And, so, and, and, and I've had wives come up and tell me that while they've got all these kids. Pastor, I, 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 it's just the family and there's so much going on and I don't have a whole lot of extra time. I feel like I'm useless for the Lord. I feel like I'm not serving the church. You are serving the church. You're bearing children and raising them as unto the Lord and that is serving the church. You are doing the primary functional purpose of serving the church. Have kids. Raise those kids as unto the Lord. Pass the church into the next generation. And that's certainly nothing to be scorned. As a matter of fact, our, our church model is a reflection of the fact that we see that as an elevated purpose. 
Don't have kids and then hand them off to the church to be brought up. Bring up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Husband and wife together, of course. Fathers leading that charge as they ought. But that is, I believe what this is saying here, um, in contrast to the role of the teacher in the church, which is not the role that God has made women for. Thoughts, questions, concerns? Nathaniel. It's a partnership. Absolutely. Yeah, the old idiom says the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, right? And the reason why is because children are a product of their upbringing. The ones that train them are the ones that imbue into them the principles by which they will often live their lives. And so, again... Women, this is certainly not a statement that you lack power in any way, shape, or form. I get your children in your presence for three hours a week, four hours a week. You have your children in your presence for the rest of it. And they sleep through those three hours. hours. That's right. Or color or whatever, right? So it is... And, and, you know, men, we're, we're going out providing and protecting and doing those things that we are to do. And while we would hope that it all is in balance, right? So that, so that the, the, the mother is partnering with the father and is lining with his vision for the home and raising the children as unto his vision. And then the husband and wife are partnering with the pastor so that as I'm handing down what the word of God says, you two then are discussing what the word of God has said and the po- points that you then want to uh, um, most most importantly inculcate into your children and then you're, you're bringing them up in, in consistency and in clarity with those principles in hand. And that's supposed to be the design where we're all kind of, we're all cogs working together, right, in the same machine to create the next generation of the church that's stable and that's mature and that has clear-eyed and that's made the right decisions and that steps into adulthood without those regrets and that steps in with, with, with a stable moral foundation by which they can then take leadership over time. And, and so, yes, in a, in a very real way, um, if this is working right, then there's nothing but complete synchronization between the husband, but between the man's role as teacher and the woman's role as facilitator, um, in, enforcer is probably not the right word, although probably may be the right word, um, in, in, in many cases. But uh, 
the one who raises the child. Yeah, and that, that is another good way to put it, which is it is not necessarily, I, I believe it's not an uncommon thing. It, it's, we think of the Wesleys, the Wesleys spoke regularly of their mother. Um, Thomas Jefferson spoke of his mother. Um, um, it is not, I don't believe it's an uncommon thing that when men do enter into that leadership um, in, in the church, in, in their time and in their season, that their mother's fingerprints are not all over their, their leadership, their ministry, their, their, their viewpoint and perspective of life, so that mothers, you very well could become a seminal part of the leadership of a church through your sons and your grandsons because they are going to lead in the spirit of your Exhortations and teachings. And that's, I think, very much so, very much so included in the idea here. Other thoughts? So, uh, yes, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, and, and what we find here is, is that, that we are in a generalization, right? That the next generation is, is, is brought up, but this isn't, this isn't intended to be a, a, a statement of condemnation upon, again, the woman who doesn't have children or can't have children or, or, or the woman whose child is not walking according to um, the way of the Lord. It, it's in the same way, if we can say it this way, um, as it's not a condemnation upon all our men that you are not all teachers, but that God has raised up a generation of men to teach. From, from the generation, he has raised up men to teach. In the same way, from the generation, he raises up women. And, and in this case, a lot more women have children than men teach. But that doesn't, it's not across the board. It's not across the board for men and it's not across the board for women. We are talking about a, a role in the church. And yes, we might call it an elevated role. Again, you're, you're giving me a paycheck. You're not giving Nathaniel or Sam or Steve or, or, or Josh or Joel. You're not giving them paychecks because I have a, in that sense, an honored role in the church. But that doesn't make any of you lesser men or lesser believers or lesser functional parts of the church as you do the part that God has called you to do. And women, God has given you a role as well. And it doesn't make you a lesser woman in the church if you are not in that role. 
But this is an honored role. And what, what is actually fascinating about that way of thinking is um, that as a general rule then, while few men get to actually live into that honored role of teaching, the majority of women can live into that honored role of raising up the next generation, which is kind of neat. Good. Any other? Yes, Sam. Hmm. is an interesting thing hmm. where so much of our culture is about yourself and your needs and what you know will make you happy right now versus the idea of and then we've seen it throughout history of making those sacrifices in this generation for that next generation and in this sense making the sacrifice of time and of effort you know both mother and father Yeah, it's really been since the sexual revolution that we and and the 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 issues surrounding 60s, 70s, the the great generation gap that happened there, right? Vietnam and with uh, the 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 sexual revolution and everything, it was really in that generation that generational thinking in in the West, especially in the United States, just splintered, and and splintered in the church too, which is why we we. We do not do the, the youth programming thing. We're trying to reconcile the hearts of the fathers to their children, right? Because there has been this splintering of generational appreciation, and it's even touched the church. It's uh, age-segregated everything, right? Uh, there's age-segregated media. And, and we're probably as far away in this generation as we've ever seen it before with the, the generation gap between what the parents understand and what the children understand. And this kind of harkens back to, Sam, when you were teaching about the um, um, uh, on Plymouth Plantation. And you were talking about the, that, that, the, that, I believe it was that first year where the majority of the women died because they were making sure their children were fed. And that really struck my wife and I um, when, when you had taught on that. And uh, a reminder of that, that maternal instinct, a generational instinct, which says, my job is to provide the, 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 the next generation of this, of this intent, of this purpose, of this, of this journey. And in order to do that, uh, the women would starve themselves for their children. Um, and that, that, that was, a, it was a different mindset, right? A generational mindset that said, we are bigger than just us. There's something bigger happening here. There's something bigger happening on Plymouth Plantation. There's something bigger happening in the church than you. And we're a part of that. She to they? Um, how if you don't have, it also makes me think of people reading that, which would be Timothy, yep. would have had that mindset, that general mindset already. Right. So we would have understood it more quickly than us maybe who are going, is that just bad grammar? Like if someone just plain reading it might say that just seems like bad grammar. Yep. Yep. Um, that was something that came to my mind. Was like, oh, this makes it more understandable sense. 
Right. So, so now this is interesting because I remember I was a pastor when I had the aha moment about what this passage, I believe, means. I'd never heard it taught and, and preached. And the idea of the they there, what, what, what most translators would say is, she shall be saved in childbearing if the women continue, right? So it's just the they there is, instead of basically what, what runs through the mind of the typical translator here is, women will be saved if those women continue. And the, I, the, the fact of going from a singular to a plural there is just, the woman will be saved if women continue in this way. And that's what most people actually, uh, from, what, from my, my studies, think. And when I was initially studying through this so I could preach through First and Second Timothy, which was many years ago now, um, I was, you know, I, 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 don't, um, I don't go to commentaries first. I always pray and study and pray a lot more. And, and I, I go to commentaries after I have formed a thought process and a conclusion. I never go to a commentary to formulate the thought process or conclusion. And, um, and I was praying through this, thinking through this. Why is this here? And this is another reason why our philosophy of translation, where we believe the words actually matter, is so important because if we didn't believe the words matter, then I'd just say, well, there's just something wrong here. Like you said, bad grammar. Uh, something, something's amiss here. Something got lost in translation here. But if I believe that the, that the Bible is verbally, plenarily inspired, every word is supposed to be there in the Greek. So I go back to the Greek and I see, okay, the, the, it's a good translation then. Then why is it they? And that's when it clicked. The children. And then it elevates that. You, you know, it's very interesting. We, we've talked about it a little bit. I, I didn't maybe harp, harp on it as much as I should have in Genesis. Adam does not give his wife a name. He calls her woman. For out of man she was taken. Until after God speaks of the idea of her, child, of her having children. That it, was, it was actually after the curse... But it was, there was an emphasis after that curse on the fact that she would bear children. And then he says, her name shall be Eve, for she is the mother of all living. Her name was given to her, and it was defined by her being a mother. By her being the beginning of what would then be all living things. And so once again, as we, as we think through this, um, it's not to say that all of these translations have malice in them, right? But it's just that we have a very different mindset in the United States today where a woman reads that, and if the, the standard woman, if she reads, my position in the church is somehow contingent upon having faithful, loving, obedient, godly children, she recoils at that. Not necessarily because she doesn't want to have children or she doesn't want to have faithful children or she doesn't have faithful children or anything, but she recoils because that's so anti-individualism. That's so anti-American thinking. It's so, it's so anti-everything that the last 60 years has inculcated into our culture. But, as Andrea said, it's very, very possible that I mean, it's most certainly the case, I would imagine, even in the Greek culture there, because almost every civilization has had a generational 
we, uh, we, we are very unique in the extent to which our children are alienated from the generations that have gone before them. You still go to other countries, China, Mexico, uh, any South American country. Um, uh, missionary um, um, George was talking about it. He was talking about what, what it is like to knock on doors. He said they don't knock on doors. They clap at the door, right? And then they clap at the door and then the person comes out and they expect to just stand there and talk for a long time. They, they, they have a public square still where they will all go and they will sit and they will engage with one another in conversation. Multi-generations sitting down together and engaging with each other in conversation. These are things that still happen in vast majority of the world. It's just in the Western world where we have experienced for the last 60 to 70 years this tremendous is alienation. Um, and it actually began, I believe, culturally with music. Specifically Elvis and the Beatles. If you want to uh, pare it down to, to particular types and individuals that brought about this tremendous generation gap right, right, right around that time. Elvis and the Beatles. Um, so we would expect that this would not be, that, 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 that the idea that a woman is saved in childbearing if her children continue might be a very natural interpretation for a culture that's not steeped in generation gaps and individualism like ours is today. Good. Any other thoughts? Okay, we wrap it up there for today, but do notice, and, and I, I, I want to make this very clear, because actually the, the, the natural inspiration to this study was was uh, to work through these things. Notice that, and as I've said, that doesn't mean that if a woman's children are not serving the Lord or if she doesn't have children, that she is not useful to the church. We'll talk about that next time. Service to the church, prayer and prophecy. We do see women very busy in the New Testament church. And that busyness is not... There, there, is, uh, there isn't necessarily a... We, we do see... Uh, Certain times, women and their children, especially, say, Timothy with his, with his mother and grandmother, we see, we see the, the, the generational legacy from time to time. But most of the other in instances of women serving the church, it's them serving the church, them serving the church, right? So that's what we're going to talk about next time. We'll look at those, and then again, we'll go back to 1 Corinthians, and we'll talk about um, what Paul talks about in, in chapter 11 with, um, with women praying and prophesying, and we'll, we'll walk through that. But uh, we have to talk next time about Phoebe, specifically. And that's where we're going to get a little controversial again. Because Phoebe was a servant in the church, and we find her in Romans chapter 16. And it's, what's interesting is that the word that Paul uses to describe her service in the church is the word deacon. So then we have to figure out what that means, that Paul called Phoebe a deaconess in the church. And we'll... We'll, 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 we'll get into those weeds a little bit, figure out why it is he called her a deaconess, and uh, that may under, help us understand why it is that certain churches have no problem with deaconesses in the church as we look at that, and that will be next week.